Hello everybody and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, your go-to Newcastle United podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, anyone who listens to the podcast now can subscribe to The Athletic with a 40% discount by using the code NEWCASTLEPOD. So go to www.athletic.co.uk forward slash NEWCASTLEPOD uh, and get your 40% discount. My name's Taylor Payne and I am joined as ever by the wonderful Mr Chris Wolf. How are we doing Chris? I'm very good, thank you. Very good. It's lovely to hear your voice, mate. It's absolutely oh, lovely. That, that, that means a lot. That means a lot. How's isolation going? Is it okay? It's not too bad, thank you. Yeah, my back gate hasn't taken any more of a battering, so we're all good. <laughs> that is always a bonus, isn't it? <laughs> and also, of course, we're joined by uh, Mr. George Cog. And George, how are you? Are you okay? Well, apparently I'm not wonderful. That's the first thing I'm noticing from your little introduction <laughs> don't there. You, that was, don't you start was, pulling apart my introduction? That was mealy-mouthed. That was mealy-mouthed, had that Taylor. last week. Right, George, okay. I tell you what, just just reset. Uh, also, ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by the marvellous Mr. George Colgan. George, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Yes, you getting, getting by. Yes. Mm. Oh. I prefer wow. wonderful. <laughs> wow. By the way, um, it's important that everybody knows that Chris's nickname is now officially either Waffles or Whiff Waff. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I it's been... It's been the former for quite a while. Just you've just cottoned onto this. The latter is a new one. I'll give you that. I'm happy with either or both of them. Yeah, we can't refer to him as Chris anymore. It has to be waffles or whiff waff. Waffles, right? Okay. Waffles. Excellent. Can we call him? Can we call him Sergeant Waffles? <laughs> I like That's that. good. I like that. I don't know why. I mean, yes, we can. Why not? Just to add a bit of potato. <laughs> no, you've spoilt it now, Waff. Waffles. Yeah, come on, Waffles, waffles. pack it in. Captain Waffles. Right, <laughs> so uh, we've got an action-packed, uh, fun-filled show for you today. We've got lots and lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to have a little uh, update on the takeover story to start with. We'll have a little chat about Newcastle United and what they've been doing uh, during the coronavirus epidemic. And we're also going to be joined by a special guest in a little bit. We've got former Newcastle United and Northern Ireland international uh, Aaron Hughes is going to be joining us for a lovely bit of a Woo-hoo! chat. That sounds all right, doesn't it, lads? Yeah. I'm very look, we're talking for that, yeah. Very, the yes. nicest man in football, I think. I think that's his official title. Is that right? Well, we yeah, shall soon lovely. see, won't we? Let's hope, he, let's hope he lives up to that billing that you've given him, George. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if that's he comes brilliant. on the line and immediately calls me a twat, then I'm going to be look very foolish. But, I mean, I don't think he's ever sweat. I mean, he'd be right. But... I don't think yeah, he's ever I mean, sworn in his life, Aaron. Oh, well, fair play. I mean, he, and I noticed when I was doing my little bit of research that he never received a red card ever in his entire career. Well, that just so I think that kind of that bears out your uh, your uh, your opinion of him. Anyway, let's move on. Um, So things have been moving at a pace in the last couple of days. We've had a few murmurs and rumours and things have been going around on on the Internet and in the media. Uh, And then last night, George, you put out uh, a piece on The Athletic. addressing the Newcastle United takeover situation at the moment is there anything else that we can uh, that we can talk about today can you give us a little update on where that is at the moment yeah I mean I well I think I want to do is put it into it into context really and that's that's really what I was trying to do with the piece I wrote if we think back it's something that I've talked about on the podcast that we've talked about on the podcast when the story sort of originally broke at the end of January and yeah. But I haven't wanted to write something really until there was something so, sort of substantive to report um, and not kind of add fuel to the fire. And that was very much yeah. the approach I took and that we, we, we took at The Athletic that really until there was something to sort of physically say, it's just going back over sort of similar old old ground. Now, 
has that position changed up to a point but it's for, for me it also feels like it's gone on for so long now that not writing something just feels a bit strange i don't want to i don't want to get people overexcited for no reason i don't want to be kind of be part of that at all but it did feel that when the story emerged over the weekend that the premier league had been notified about um this group's attempt to buy the club that it's just passed beyond the point where saying nothing almost looks like I'm just, you know, we're dismissing it as something that shouldn't be considered. Um, but, you know, also the response to that story was that this is PR on behalf of Mike Ashley or the club. He's had a bad week with Sports Direct and this was just him trying, trying to sort of put a smokescreen up. Now, I know for a fact that that's not the case. I mean, 100%, the origin of, of these stories is not spin on behalf of Keith Bishop or anybody else attached to the club, it's not that. It is categorically not that. And really the point of what I was writing was that um, Amanda Staveley's second attempt to buy the club has been a year in the planning um, and a year in the making. It's taken a very long time to get this coalition together, which includes uh, the Saudi Arabia um, Public Investment Fund and the Rubin brothers who were involved yeah. the first time. And it's been a painstaking pro process. It's been a painstaking process because it's very difficult to deal with Mike Ashley, um, and that's been pro that's been proved uh, countless times. And it's been very difficult because it's incredibly complicated. So, and the things that add to the complication are there are three principles on her side. There's her. There's the Rubin brothers. There's the Saudis. Any little changes in plans or contracts, therefore, have to go around three people and then go back to three sets of lawyers and then have to be agreed again and of course then have to go to Ashley and then there are other things for example the HMRC investigation that have added huge levels of complexity um, again aside from things like due diligence and plans and stuff like that and of then of course what's happening now so the point I was trying to make was this is not spin it's not um, it's not Ashley you know attempting to cover his tracks i know that's covering our, himself yeah yeah it's it's our you know this is a very natural reaction um for people to think that kind of stuff and it's it's also reached a point where it is it's gone much further than any other attempt to buy the club and and therefore it's much closer to happening however the you know yeah. the big the big point is they have to get an agreement signed and then sent the Premier League for the owners and directors a test to happen, and that yeah. hasn't happened yet. So, so just to clarify, just to clarify, George, I just want to double check something with you. The the Premier League has been notified about the potential buyers. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the way it has to happen. So it's information right. about the potential buyers, but that gets submitted by the club. That's what that's what I was told. But the Premier League, but the directors test stuff hasn't started yet none of that stuff that's a completely different yet. that's a completely different thing what would happen right. is my understanding is what would happen is there'd be an agreement a deposit would be paid it goes to the premier league for uh the yeah owners and directors test um the 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 feedback they've got is that that could take up to a month and then if that's successful then the full amount of money gets paid and it's done i mean you know there could be a handover process but i think we're you know there would be a handover process but at, at, at the, you know at the moment we've got everything that's going on in the world new owners physically couldn't get to the ground and do 
you know do the work they need to do because they're not allowed i mean so um so i, I mean i specifically made the point i think it's it's not hashtag cans time um we're not at hashtag cans just yet we're not at hashtag cans yet but so really that it was my attempt and i don't want to get people overexcited but i do want to i did feel the need to put everything in context about this being something that's been a year in the planning and it has now reached a very advanced stage the next step is obviously in some ways it's the smallest step and in some ways it's also the biggest step yeah i mean it's it it would be just typical and the most newcastle united thing in the world wouldn't it if if as fans we've waited all this time for for something to happen like this for Ashley actually to sell the club and if the announcement is made in the next couple of months or something like that we can't go to the pub and enjoy it it's just the most newcastle thing ever isn't it there would be social media i mean social media hashtag cans you know with little videos and pictures and stuff like that might be quite good fun but um but yeah no i know but it would be we'd be we'd be storing up we'd be storing up quite a good party yeah, I've got a particularly nice um, bottle of vintage wine from my local Londis, which is uh, which is sitting chilling, just waiting to open that. I mean, you say. <laughs> I think it's from it's Slovakia. It's fast. It's book fast, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Chris, how are we feeling about this? About the takeover stuff? I mean, similar to to sort of what George has said, it's it's one of those things which I don't think anybody, including. George and myself will, until it actually is, if it does get concluded, until it actually reaches that point, your natural reaction is cynicism because we've been here for three years or whatever it yeah. is. There's been two uh, times before where Ashley's put the club up for sale and it hasn't happened. And so you do naturally just, your immediate reaction is one of scepticism and is this actually going to happen? But it, what, what I found most interesting about George's piece and when George has, has explained to me is that it's about the fact that the coronavirus situation hasn't actually affected this negatively as you might have thought as it would in terms of everyone's thinking, why would you do a massive business transaction this sort of time? And George explains in the piece, but he might just want to detail a little bit more about why actually the Saudis don't view this as just something which is going to just going to affect in the short term. Because obviously there are going to be significant effects to all businesses as a result of this, but they haven't been put off because of that. Thanks, Waffles. Um, uh, <laughs> I suppose, yeah, the, I mean, that was my assumption as well was you know why on earth would anybody at this point when you know we have all this uncertainty and stock markets are kind of crashing everywhere why on earth would you go out and uh, make what is effective uh, you know effectively a vanity purchase and a non-essential pur purchase um, at the moment well the answer to that is that although it doesn't feel like it at the moment the coronavirus is a short-term problem I mean it might be a short-term problem that lasts for six months or a yeah. year for all we know, but it's it's short term. The way that the that the public investment fund works is very much long term. It's a long term view, and having given their commitment or having given a commitment to do this, they'll see it through. So it isn't about selling the club in six months' time and making a quick profit. It's about what happens in ten years' time or five years' time or you know whatever. And so. That sort of stuff, I mean, they're rich enough to be able to afford to, if not ignore what's happening now, then to treat it as a short-term sort of issue. Um, and so, I mean, you know, one, one of the other things that I've, that I've sort of talked about is is what the price for the club is now. You know, the, there, may be a, there may be a sort of reduction in that and, and things we'll have to see, you know, we'll have to see if and when. But, um, you know, they can afford to take a long-term view and 
buying a football club from their perspective is a long term is a long term proposition. Okay, great. Well, that's, it's great to get a little update on that anyway, and and, and uh, I think a lot of people enjoyed reading the piece that you put out last night. Um, from a, as we're talking about the coronavirus, and from a business point of view as well, the the announcement was made this week that Newcastle have have chosen to, to furlough the the non-playing staff, I believe, at, at, at the club and uh, in the wake of the coronavirus, the the first Premier League team to do this. Um, what's our take on this? I was a little bit surprised by this, to be honest. Well, this is so Spurs have subsequently followed today actually. Um I mean I don't know the specifics of Spurs. I've just I just had a quick look before. But Newcastle were the first to do it. They've taken advantage of the government scheme which is out there. So the government, at least until the end of April when it'll be reviewed, will pay eighty percent of those non playing staff wages. Newcastle are gonna pay the remaining twenty. So no staff are losing out in terms of at least and certainly until the end of April in terms of money. But it it does it does sort of jar a little bit. I think it does feel a little bit uncomfortable because we're still in a situation where the play, I mean, it's very much a skeleton staff right now working at Newcastle. Most of the media staff, most of the uh, box office staff, even those at the foundation, which I think really strikes uh, a, a discord w- with me, uh, have been, are, in, are in this position whereby essentially that they've been told for now they're not working until the end of April and then the situation will be reviewed depending on what happens with the Premier League. Now, the biggest cost base is obviously the first team squad and the, the, the first team coaches. Now, it seems, as was reported on The Athletic yesterday, that there is a move of almost like a pan Premier League move to try and agree a reduction or deferral in wages across the entire Premier League, which seems to be why Newcastle haven't yet tackled that cost base. But just the fact that 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 the rest of the staff have been put on furlough first doesn't quite feel right. It doesn't feel like that should have been the way around it was, given that the huge, the significant cost base really is from the first team squad who are still at the moment as far as we're aware and at the club I'm denied they're still getting paid uh, the full amount of money what, one thing that I don't understand is and you know perhaps it takes somebody with more of a kind of financial brain than me but you know we know already that Newcastle have given away 10,000 up to 10,000 half season tickets so it's not as if they're losing out huge match day income because they've already given effectively they've already given that away and they've so there is that commitment for the rest of the season now a, a club like Spurs fine they're very very rich they bring in a lot of money they've also just built a new stadium and have to service that debt and I can see why match day income not coming in becomes a problem I mean I can see I can understand that basic principle it's different with Newcastle. And the other difference is, I mean, all businesses can have cash flow issues, but in football, everything gets paid in advance. So you get your TV money in advance, you get your sponsorship, you know how much is going to come in with all those things. And that hasn't, you know, that hasn't changed. And the, the, I mean, so I share Chris's discomfort, sorry, Wiffwaff's discomfort with this, <laughs> particularly when foundation staff were, you know, responding brilliantly only a week or so ago to the yeah. coronavirus situation and delivering delivering stuff to to, to, to vulnerable people and you know I, I don't want to I don't want to say stuff that might then prove not to be true but it does you know we, we're constantly told that Newcastle are a self-sufficient club profitable financially a fine um, and that's so I, I don't understand why they've had to take this move as quickly as quickly as they have. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think especially in the uh, in the aftermath of the last couple of weeks as well of, of Mike Ashley coming in for some bad press and some bad stick with regards to his practices with Sports Direct and in relation to the coronavirus outbreak. I think this kind of... And then also the... Uh, the taking of the the direct debits for the season ticket money as well. Now I understand that's a a transaction that's in place, and unless the person at the end of the direct debit cancels, that's going to go through anyway. Um, but I think there's been a bit of bad press recently, and I think probably Newcastle United didn't really need this at the moment, did they? No, I don't, and that's what I mean about it, the fact that it just seems. I, I mean, you're looking across the entire country, across the entire world, and, and businesses everywhere are being affected. And actually, one of the things that Daniel Levy says in his, his statement today is basically that people need to wake up and that there's, there's, there's still being talked about 100 and whatever million pound potential transfers this summer. He says you have to understand how significant this crisis is. Now, I, I agree with Georgia in terms of just doing sort of the numbers. and it, it, Newcastle don't seem to me as if they'd be in the worst position compared to others. They made a profit the last time they had the accounts out. According to David Ornstein, our colleague, the Premier League Premier League clubs got uh, the latest tranche of payments in February from their from the TV companies. Now I know that there's a concern that if they can't complete the league, they'll have to pay that back. But at the moment, in theory, they have that. There was a transfer budget available in January for Newcastle, so in theory there was money there. I know there can be cash flow issues across the course of the season, but in theory there was money there, and so it doesn't sit because the, because the players haven't been put in the same sort of situation yet, it doesn't feel right. And I just feel that in terms of that PR move of why is it, say if there's an agreement at the end of this week or start of next week with Premier League players, was it such a situation that Newcastle couldn't afford to even get to the end of this week or whatever it is yeah. by this? Yeah. It doesn't seem to add up, but as George says, we don't know the ins and outs. We don't know exactly what the money is, but it just doesn't quite sit right at the moment. Well, let's wait and see what happens with that one, yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a difficult period at the moment um, for everyone. And we've been invited by our, our overlords at The Athletic to... Uh, to mention a local business or two and, and to give them a little bit of publicity, uh, we've, asked, we've each been asked to, to choose a local business and me and Chris both chose the same business, unbeknownst to each other, which I think says more about me and you, Chris, than it does about anything else. Uh, and we've chosen uh, the Geordie Banger Company, which is a, <laughs> a range of uh, handmade uh, sausages which are produced in North Shields uh, and have all kinds of different flavours. But I have to say my personal favourite is the brown ale sausage. It is unbelievable. Oh, that is a good sausage. I like a good sausage, particularly a sausage on a stick as they do. <laughs> can we can, just... Sorry, sorry, can we sorry. That bit? Yes. yes, please. That's exactly what I was going to say to our <laughs> athletic overlords. Please, can we just clip that? That's that's all I oh, want Oh, that to is hear. a good sausage. Yes. That's all I want to hear for the rest of my life. But what I, what I didn't realise, Taylor, having looked at their website, and I have been and I have regularly got a sausage on a stick. They do all these sort of... Uh, they go to different food festivals and whatnot yeah. and markets. But apparently, apparently they do... Uh, Peas pudding dip to put your sausage in, which I did not know. Again, right, Chris, that probably sounded very not, wrong. But... This is this is not the time for dirty talk. Okay, Chris, let's carry stop on that. sausages <laughs> with, with Sergeant Whiffwaff. <laughs> oh, George, what about you? Is there a local business that um that you would like to give a little shout out to or mention to? Yes, I would like to, to mention the Pink Lane Bakery, who um, have a couple of outlets, uh, but one their most recent ones in Gosforth and. Um, they they are they're still open and they're providing lovely amazing bread amazing uh croissant things like that and um yeah great people i think they're sort of i think they're magicians when it comes to baked goods 
Um, not in the sense that they, well, well, they make them and then they disappear. So maybe that is um, that's, uh, that's, that's what I mean. But uh, yeah, beautiful. And I like to just Fantastic. say, you know, obviously, thank you to all the people who are working in whether it's local kind of companies like that or big supermarkets and things like that. They're, you know, they're doing they're doing a, a different job to the people in the NHS. But um, you know, we 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 need them, and you know, they're putting themselves in the front line to make sure yeah. that we've got food and drink and all the rest of it. Um, so big thanks to all of them. Yeah, yeah. The Geordie Banger Company have a drive up, uh, a little drive up window that you can go to and you get your, you get drive through sausages in packets, which is amazing. <laughs> Why nobody has ever thought of this before? A drive through sausage emporium. <laughs> it's the future. Anyway, well, that's so that's 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 this week's band name, isn't it? The drive through sausage emporium. Drive through sausage in, emporium. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's always one. There's always one. Oh, it's in. Can you believe it? I think it's the skipper. It's his first international goal. Aaron Hughes, I thought he was never going to score. And he's put Northern Ireland on their way. A welcome back, everybody. And we are absolutely delighted to announce uh, we have a, a special guest with us today. Ladies and gentlemen, please be upstanding for Mr. Aaron Hughes. Hello, Aaron. How are you doing? Uh, morning. Oh, no, sorry. Good afternoon. It's afternoon now, isn't it? <laughs> That's a good start. Yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, <laughs> that's what happens when, when you've been locked away for this long. The days and the time just blends into one big, long, continuous sort of thing. And the days get away from you, don't they? Yeah. How are you doing already? Are you good? Are you well? Where are you at the moment? Yeah, I'm just in the house, um, like everyone else should be. Um, <laughs> and where is that? <laughs> um, uh, in uh, in Northumberland, up up uh, up close to Morpeth. So um, oh, yeah, fantastic. just just in the house, and then yeah, not really not really up to much. But then I guess that's just the, the way things are at the moment, obviously. So you're still in the northeast as well, yeah? I, I didn't realise that you were still up here. That's fantastic. Just uh, not not long back, actually, not long back. Um, sort of moved back last uh, middle of last year, so. Uh, yeah, enjoying being being back in an area that I know quite well. Fantastic stuff. So, what have you been doing with yourself since since retiring from football? Anyway, what's the uh, what's been the uh, the day to day goings on of Aaron Hughes? It's it's been a strange time because it's I've been trying to take a little bit of time off just to enjoy not having to go into training every day, the schedule and all uh, you know everything else. But at the same time, yeah. I, I, I get bored quite quickly, so I'm trying to find things to fill my time. Um, I, I, in terms of work, I've done a little bit of media stuff, and, and I'm actively, you know, up until you know the, the last couple of weeks where things have shut down a little bit, you know, just looking to see what's out there. Um, and I've started a, a like a, an executive masters in sports management, which is is geared more towards sort of the admin side of football, like. Um, uh, you know, like a sporting director, uh, academy director, you know, stadium manager, so, something of, uh, that stays in sport but just isn't involved directly on the pitch like a coach. The, the way it worked out in terms of my coaching badges, the, the timing of it, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to start my, my licence until, you know, maybe uh, May or June, obviously, if things right. go back to normal. Um, so in that yeah. time, there was a bit of a gap to maybe try and fill it with something else and the opportunity came up to, to do this. So I thought it would be, uh, it would be something good to add to the, you know, sort of, I guess, the overall package of, you know, when I do yeah, finally find myself back and work somewhere. And Aaron, you played forever. I mean, you you effectively played until until last year, didn't you? Um, yeah. Did you, I mean, you must have known that that was coming. You must have seen it kind of coming for a, for a while. But did it still come as a shock? Has it come as a shock not playing? I mean, a, a, so many players say that it is a struggle, that you have all this structure in your life and then suddenly it's gone. Have you Have you sort of experienced that as well? 
I have actually, and and it's. I don't think anything can prepare you for it as much as you know it's coming. Um, and uh, with me, I didn't. I knew it was coming, but I didn't really know when, because for yeah. for the last couple of seasons, I almost made the decision. I left it right up to the end of the season to to see where I was going. Um, you know, I what after after Brighton, I went out to Australia, and, and I'd sort of planned to go out to Australia and. Maybe maybe stay out there for a couple of years, just to you know, even if I wasn't playing football, retire out there, just see see where life would take me. Type things after the Euros finished, um, but then because because of the success in the Euros and because I found myself you know playing, I, I wanted to have another go, you know, trying to qualify for a World Cup because I thought that at the time the squad was good enough that you know to, to have a real good go at it. Um, you know, ultimately we just missed out in a playoff, but. It put a career by another two years, and rather than having some sort of a plan or that, it was very much trying to just, you know, do things on the hop. You know, we moved back to, we moved back to, to the UK with with no, you know, no club and nowhere to live. Um, it was very hard to plan and to really prepare for. Like, all right, this is, you know, at the end of the season, I'm definitely finishing because I didn't really know when that was going to be up until close to the end of last season. So, and then everything that comes after that, the structure. You know, it's it's just it's just different, and uh, yeah, it's even for I think even for the most prepared people, the most settled people, everything. I think that immediate sort of getting pulled out of the the environment you've been so used to for so long is is a shock for anyone. You obviously, I mean, I love the fact that you've come back, that you've come back to the northeast, and my very strong opinion is that you should never have gone in the first place. But that wasn't that obviously that wasn't your decision, but. because you came through the ranks at Newcastle, obviously you were born in born in in Northern Ireland, and that's where you that's you know that's where you spent your childhood. But you came over to Newcastle early and came through the ranks. Does an experience like that prepare you for life in in lots of ways? Because I know we, we you know we often think about footballers' lives having this sort of amazing lifestyle and all that kind of stuff, but that's a pretty tough thing to have to do, isn't it? Yeah, I think probably I only think about it like that now when I'm older. Because when you're 16, it's it, you know it's exciting and the world's in front of you, and you just it's just what you have to do. There's there's no real bigger thought process around it than that. It's you know you really go and try and have that career lifestyle, everything that goes along with it. It's 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 what's in front of you. So you almost don't think as you get older and you appreciate it a little bit more and certainly when you get to where I'm at now and you know I have a 16 year old daughter now I think the thought of her leaving home to go away you know is is sort of boggles the mind quite thing and then I think well that's exactly what I did at at my age so uh, it's it's like everything I think as you get older you get a a different sort of view on it and a slightly different appreciation and uh, you know I certainly I certainly didn't think of it like that at that age but it probably, in hindsight, was you know quite a quite a big thing, quite a big step for me, and certainly does prepare you for for things later in life for sure. It must have been really weird coming into Newcastle uh, in such an exciting time in the mid nineties, mid to late nineties as well, and and coming in with all of those you know what you would call star players at the time in Newcastle at the time were flying and had a very good team. It must have been quite daunting for a young lad like yourself to come in into that situation. It was certainly exciting. Um, you know, when you've got the chance to go and, you know, join a, a club which is competing for the Premier League, you know, it's it's one of the, the, the top clubs in the country at the time. It, it, that side of it's really exciting. And, you know, the opportunity, you think of what's ahead and, and, and the players, you, you know, walking into the training, um, 
and the first team players are walking past you, you know, and you, the, like the stature and the, and, and you know the, the way you look at them, then it's it's just it's it's incredible as a kid of that age to go in, and again, daunting. Yes, you, you obviously know, you obviously know the 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 scale of of what you're getting into, but I think that young innocence again it's just exciting. You just go, you go after it. Um, it is it is nervous being around, you know, at that age and, and players again when you look at them at that time. Look, some of them would later become sort of teammates, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> they are playing in the same team as them. But at the time, you know, they were the first team players. They were the guys that yeah. as young players we looked up to and, and, and really put on a pedestal. And I think that's where that was quite daunting when, you know, you were going into maybe train with them sometimes, you know, that the we, we would get the chance to go along and you know, train alongside the first team. And I think that's where the, the, the sort of the nerves and, and where you felt a bit daunted and, and overwhelmed sometimes where you just you wanted to just go and, and, and not make a fool of yourself but as I say the, the more the more we get used to that the, the easier it got and, and the more comfortable we felt with it one of the one of the things we've done uh, Aaron is to sort of ask on Twitter about uh, to see if Newcastle fans have any questions they'd like to ask you and one from Kingy66 hey it's extraordinary to think back to this that you actually made your first team debut for Newcastle at the new Camp, playing against Barcelona in the Champions League. I mean, his question is, were you sort of too young to appreciate that at the time? But, I mean, what a what what an extraordinary place and and time to make your debut for the club. Yes and no to the answer. Was I too young to appreciate it? Again, going back to the sort of previous, what we're talking about before in terms of it being a... You know, being a, a young player and, and looking at this, you know, to, to be part of the first team, to be part of the, the that environment and the players that are playing, I, I think I understood being in that. It was a big thing. You know, it was more. It, it wasn't so much making a debut at the new camp. It was more so finally making a debut in the Newcastle first team with the players that were around or coming through that process. But. Now looking back, I mean it's a it's a it's a nice thing to have on on your CV, and you know, it's a nice talking point. And obviously, everyone remembers the game, and and there was I think there was probably only what twenty five thirty thousand in the stadium. It was it was surreal. The actual game was surreal, and everything around it. I have very little memories of the actual game. It's it's more you know some of the feelings and just standout sort of snapshots in my mind of for some reason things that I can remember, but. um I, I did appreciate it at the time. I, I knew what it was, but I think, in a way, I, I do get like when you look back, it's it's probably even better than what it was at the time because I, you know I didn't think about it. I just wanted to go and play and, and and make my debut and do well and not let anyone down. And afterwards, you come off the pitch and you think, wow, I've just made my debut. I don't think there's many players who who made their debut at the new camp for Newcastle, did they? In the Champions League, that's quite that's quite a big thing. Let's be honest. It's it is. It's a nice, like I said, it, it is a nice thing. And I'm not trying to downplay it or, or that it's just it, it's more so when you at, at that time you know you, you, you're not thinking in, in, in that terms you're just or i was just thinking you know it's, it's i remember just thinking of, i finally made the debut for for the first thing you know and it's you know that was the overall overall emotion like i say now looking back it's it's just nice to have the fact that it was a barcelona new camp added to it because it makes it quite a nice uh, a nice little thing on the cd
Thanks to our good pals at beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash tyne and pay the postage of just $4.95. And if that wasn't enough, as listeners to Pod on the Tyne, you'll get two extra free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe and find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand, and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash tyne to get your case free. And don't forget right now, listeners to Pot on the Tyne, get two extra free beers. I wanted to ask you about the... Sheffield Wednesday game. The that what was what was that occasion like? Because I think you scored the first, if, if I'm correct, in the eight nil. And obviously, it was just after Sir Bobby came in. I mean, what what was that? What was the day like? What was the change in in mood at the club as well? I mean, the the, the change, the, the mood at the club straight away was a, was a lot different. And, and I think again i think looking back on it, everything i seem to i i have more appreciation looking back on things because at the time it you know you're in the middle of it and you're just trying to process and and for me it was a new manager's coming in i've got to try and do well and you know make sure i just play well train well all the rest so you don't almost then don't fully understand what's going on around but i remember the atmosphere of that game i remember the lead up to it i remember you know, Sir Bobby pulled me before the game um, a couple of days before to say um, I was going to play because I, I think it's, he mentioned in his book as well, I think they had the option of bringing in Colin Hendry at the time, but he decided that he, you know, he wanted to, you know, give give sort of youth a, a chance at the club and, and I was, you know, in, in that position at the time and, and he gave me the chance. So uh, even that, my, my focus was very much on, Right, I am playing at the weekend. You know what I have to do to play well or prepare myself, and 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 you block out a little bit of what's going on on the outside. But you know the atmosphere that day was was electric. It was a lot of excitement. You know, sort of Bobby's first game, um, and and it you know it couldn't have gone any better uh, personally for the team. You know, for the club, for just the whole occasion for Sir Bobby himself. It, it really, it really, you know, was a fantastic occasion and. Like memory, when I say memory again, I don't have lots of memories of the of the game. I don't even really remember the goal. I I, I have a snapshot in my mind of of a coming across and right before actually I was I think I come from a set piece and I was making my way back and I remember Nobby almost physically pushing me back into the box, going where are you go and stay off. <laughs> I don't know why. I it's just in my head. And then obviously I remember the ball coming in from 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 Kieran on the left. Um, and I knew as soon as it left, I knew as soon as I headed it, it was going in. I don't know why. It's just one of those things that you have as a footballer. Sometimes you instantly know the flight of the ball or, or the moment that leaves your foot or your head. I just knew it had enough on it to go in the corner and he was, and, and wasn't going to get it. Um, and then after that, I don't really remember much else. Um, but no, it was it was great to be it was great to be a part of that day. And certainly, it, it was a it was a it was great for at the time. I guess as a young player, when a, when a new manager comes in, to know that he had the option of of 
of being able to buy someone or bring someone in, um, you know, an established senior player who played vast experience, you know, who certainly could have done a good job for, for him to give a young player a chance, you know, being me. I think that straight off the bat gave me a lot of confidence going forward as I knew that, look, if I, if I work hard and do well here, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get a chance in the side or I'm going to get a chance to play for, for this manager. And and then, of course, that led to that kind of beautiful, you know, Indian summer under, under Sir Bobby where the club gets back into the Champions League as challenging at the top again. You won't be surprised to know that this has been a question asked by several people, including by, by Ketch, who says, what is your favourite Sir Bobby memory? Because I will not accept that you don't have one. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, there's, oh, there's, there's probably a few. I mean, I remember he, he came into a team meeting uh, I think it was, I think it was charting away. I'm sure it was down in London. It might have been West Ham. Um, and he came in, and obviously we, we were in our suits or, or whatever. And he hadn't realised he tucked his shirt into his his boxer shorts under his shorts uh, under his trousers. But they they were uh, they were like they were uh, Looney Tune characters. I think that his grand one of his grandkids had bought him for Christmas or a birthday or something. And, and and so we could see the top, we could see the band of like these, like, you know, Daffy Duck, Bugs Bunny, whatever, whoever else was on it. And he started the team, he started the team meeting and obviously everyone sat there and trying not to laugh. And the more you try not to laugh, the more you can't help but start to snigger. And then it was like a snowball effect because everyone was trying to uh, like not look at it, but couldn't help look at it. And then the person next to you would start to like sort of their shoulders would start to go. So your shoulders would start to go. So the person next to you. And within a couple of minutes, like even JC was having a little giggle at the back, um, you know. And, and, and like after a couple of minutes, like you know, Sir Bobby was like, "Okay, you know, what is it? What am I missing? You know, what, what's so funny?" And JC obviously pointed out that uh, you know we could we could uh, see his. Like, he, he took it quite well. He laughed. He said, "Yeah, a little present from my, from my grandkids or something," and, and swiftly moved on. <laughs> and straight away it was back to sort of business. <laughs> there was no time to enjoy it. But I, I remember that. And then. There was one. I mean, there was one. There's, there's loads. I remember um, Juventus away in the Champions League, and and we right at the end of the session, it, we you know we sort of split up into different groups of strikers. We'd do some shooting, you know, midfielders, some cross, and whatever. And he took the defenders just to work on actually some heading, uh, you know, like a, from attacking set pieces. Um, and I I can't remember who, I can't remember if the quality wasn't good enough from from the side of the crossing in. Or whether, or whether we, we didn't have the players because they were up the other end doing something. But he actually started clipping balls in himself um, from 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 outside, like on, from left, from the left wing and from the right wing. And every time it was on the money. Every time, couldn't believe it. Like you know, and I think what he would have been, I don't know, probably close to seventy at that age, and he was just clipping things in, right foot, left foot. Um, and and again, like it's it's things like that that stick out in my head more. Just like his enthusiasm, you know. His, is wanting to do that and then probably one I don't know if you guys remember it there was one we were away in the Champions League again um, and the night before the game when the press get to come to the stadium and watch and he was doing a drill and he was running backwards and, and he stumbled and actually fell and did a backwards roll popped straight back up on his feet and kept going as if it didn't happen <laughs> and obviously all the press were there and again it's just another one of those moments where, where you like oh, everyone looks at each other and like did that just happen and, and, and had a little giggle and he just carried on as if nothing had happened and they, they'd literally just fallen over in the pitch but yeah it's, <laughs> that was Sir Bobby he just he just was full of energy full of life you know little 
I'm sure there's, well, there is, there's loads of other little ones like that, but you know, we end up talking about, we could end up talking about that all day. He was, he was brilliant. He was, he was, he was fantastic. And, and again, again, to go back to the appreciation thing, I, I really wish I had spent more time picking his brains and, and asking him questions. And, you know, it's one of the biggest things I regret, uh, you know, not really appreciating the experience and, and the players that he'd worked with and the things that he'd done. Obviously I knew them as, as a player playing under him. I knew who he was and what he'd done, but everything was very much the present in Newcastle and trying to impress him and trying to do my job from there and then. And then now looking back and, and, and looking, I just think I, I, I should have asked more questions. I, I should have asked him for more stories, you know, asked him about what was it like to be at Barcelona PSV, work with Ronaldo, just different things because he, he he's the type of manager that would have sat and told you about it all day, you know, and really, really given, given his time like that. So, um, you know, didn't uh, as much as as much as as you know I, I did appreciate that there is that there's that side I wish I still had more time. Ah, fantastic stories though, Aaron. Aaron, one of the things I remember uh, about about watching you when you were at Newcastle was your versatility as a player as well. You were you were very much a Swiss Army knife kind of player, and you had a lot of different <laughs> you had a lot of different positions. Um, what what would you what would you say is your best position, and and what would you uh, how would you attribute that to your versatility? A guy called Dean Woods has asked that on Twitter as well. I, I always considered myself a centre back. You know, yeah. I, that, that was what I came to the club as. That where I was most comfortable. Um, you know, I, I, for the first season, I, you know, people actually forget for one of the first season I played a lot at left back. You know, when, when Bobby first came to the club and, and filled in a role then. You know, and then sort of later went across the right back. But it was just, you know, it, it wasn't. Uh, I wasn't really in a position to go. Oh, you know what, Gaffer? I don't. Left back's not my position. I don't really want to play there. I'm a centre back. <laughs> you know, it's like I have the chance to play, and I'll play at left back, and I'll go in and I'll do as well as I can. And if I'm doing a good enough job to keep my place for that, then great. If not, well, at least I've given it a go. And and that's sort of how it came about playing different positions. I just I'd play where I was asked. And obviously, when you get and start and get compared, that you, you then start getting compared to right back and. Trying to play as well as you can every week, and, and constantly seeing, oh, we need a new right back. You know, we we don't have a natural right back. This, that, and the other. And it's like, well, it's true, but I wouldn't class myself as a right back myself. Um, so the, the the mentally actually was harder trying to get around it and trying to constantly prove people that I could do a job there, while while understanding I was never fully a, you know, it was probably that wasn't the most natural position. But I, I that being said, like I I got sold Aston Villa as a right back, which which is right. crazy when I look back at it. Um, even when I went from from Fulham to QPR, um, I was actually I, I went there as a, a stand-in right back, and that was at 34, 35 years of age. So it's a position that I wouldn't say I'm a natural at by no means, but I, I think I understand it enough to to play it, and I'm probably being a little bit more defensive-minded. Um, I can do a job there because I guess for a right back, well, maybe not so much now in the modern game, they, they have to be a little bit more offensive. Uh, but certainly then I, I could get away with it a little bit more because I could just sit in and just play, you know, do a job. I understood the role, understood the position. And yeah, OK, maybe weren't going to get as much down the right side with me in terms of attacking. But that was, you know, that was that was I knew my limitations, put it like that. So I, I maybe knew how to just play that role without without, um, you know, 
making too much of a mess of it. I think with that, with all that in mind, though, Aaron, and a lot of Newcastle fans, when you speak to them about you and about your time here, the, the word that always comes up for me is consistency. And it was that you were always there. You were always, you know, there or there about seven and a half, eight out of ten every single week. You were, you never shirked. You always did your job properly. Um, and like you say, you, you might have been uncomfortable in those positions. But from a fan's point of view, I don't think any of us ever realised that, you know. I'm sure if you, I'm sure if you dig through some of the archives and the old paper cuttings, you'll find a few four, four out of tens and five out of tens. Do you think? Right. I don't uh, remember any, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. I mean, you were there, so definitely. <laughs> I mean, Aaron, obviously, you through the longevity of your career, you played with a lot of very good players. You played a lot against a lot of very good players. Uh, Kevin Monaghan's asked, who was the best defender you played with, and who was the best striker or offensive player you came up against as well? Um, the, the, I'm assuming, like, as in, like, this is the best defender, I guess, at Newcastle, um, rather than of all time. Um, or much. Well, this is a career. Newcastle podcast, but you know, don't don't yeah. let that hold you back. <laughs> no, no, I just, it's just, it's a, again, like, well, it, it's it's more so from like the one you come up against. It's it's always a difficult one because the fact that the club were playing in Europe. Um, you know, you, you not only are coming up against the best strikers in the in the Premier League every week, you're you're then sort of coming up against the best strikers in Europe and and, and you know, that type of thing too. So I always find those questions quite difficult to answer, not just because there's so many players, but because of the the amount of years that I've played at Newcastle too. You know, it it, it changed. Like I obviously I played against Totty quite early on, um, played played against Cliver when he was at Barcelona, like that. You know, at the time they were world class. You know, top strikers. Um, even you know, look through the Premier League at the time. You've got Henri, you've got Drogba, you've got um, you know, you've got Rooney, like Owen. It's it's so hard to pick one out of like a long list like that to say, oh, this was the, the best one. Um, you know, even even playing against uh, Duncan Ferguson. It, you know, one of my first games was in the FA Cup down at Everton, and, and playing against Duncan. It's it's a totally different game to playing against someone like Ronaldo on the wing um, because yeah. firstly we all know Duncan you know, he's so physical and so strong but he was so good with his it's feet as well it's a fire that isn't it yeah <laughs> but it's you know it, it is so it's like it's, it's how do you pick you know it's very, very hard to pick but in terms of defenders again like when I came to the club as a young player like it's Steve High, Darren Peacock and Philip Albert um, you know and Three maybe different centre halves in terms of their attributes, but three like great defenders. And at a time when the club was like, like I said, fighting to to, to compete, um, you know, to win the Premier League. So, um, and then going forward from that, uh, you know, I played with, with Woody when uh, he was a club. You know, he went on to play for Real Madrid. He was, but for injury, he, he would have been one of the best centre halves England's ever produced. He still is in a sense, but more consistently, I guess. Um, I don't know. I, I maybe waffle through that question and just throw names at you, but it just it's maybe no, gives you a no. sense of it's quite a, <laughs> no, it's quite a hard think, question to ask. Yeah, I think that's very that's 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 very that's that's kind of very interesting. It kind of leads me on to I suppose the next part of your career because you know Bobby Bobby has that an incredible you know is that incredible spell very successful. It ends sourly, and there's that sort of feeling within the club at that point that. The needs a manager needs to come in to kind of get a grip of discipline. That was certainly the narrative that was kind of played out at the time. And Graham Sinus comes in, and things things are different. And you know there was some success in cup competitions and and so on. But I think in your 
in your final season at the club, uh, John Alan Boomsong arrives and Celestine Babiaro, and with all due respect, and this is me saying this, not you, but clearly they're not of the same calibre, I would say, as some of those players that you've mentioned, and they were playing in your position. Did you did you feel to yourself at that point that maybe the writing's on the wall? Did you think to yourself, this is just a challenge I have to, you know, I have to rise to again? Could you sense that the end was coming? I'll I'll go on a rant at some point, probably when you've answered this, but <laughs> but maybe maybe tackle that first. I didn't think the end was coming, as in, oh, that, that's it, that's I'm done now. Because I was still I was still playing. I was still like you know maybe not consistently playing, but I, I was still playing. Um, but there is that doubt in the back of your head, and that obviously Graham came in that season. Um, you know, got to January, and two of the players he bought were a centre back and a and a, and a full back. You know, both positions of which I had been playing or could play, or you know, bolster the defence. So there, there is that there is that doubt in the back of your head, and you know, wondering what's going to happen. You know, once maybe once the season finishes, because like I say, because we were still because we were still having relative success on the pitch. And and being involved, you know, we went to the I think it was a semi of the FA Cup that year, and then we the quarterfinals of the the UEFA Cup that year. So there was still success on the pitch as such in in a way, and and I was still personally still playing and being involved in, in a lot of those games. So um, there wasn't there wasn't immediate dread or anything, but like I, like I said, like understanding the situation, I, I think it was more so you know, maybe wonder what will happen in the summer. Will you know, more players come into my position, or will will you know, sort of start to be at the beginning of the end, whatever. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely in the back of the mind, maybe without without being a you know an immediate worry. I mean, I I was furious when you left. I mean, um, because I think there was this there was this sort of arrogance about the club that you know somehow they were they were outgrowing players, and you know you then look at the rest of your your career, going to Villa first of all. You know, being established there and then going on to to Fulham and having a very very long time there, and it you know for me you were the type of player who should be growing at the football club. You should be growing with the football club, and you know your versatility was a great strength. But there was also your professionalism. Your you know I would always describe you as the as the most professional footballer that I've that I kind of know, and. You know, you should have grown with the club, and the club should have grown with you. And I, I felt it felt to me like you were discarded a little bit. And you know, you should have spent, as far as I'm concerned, you should have spent the rest of your your career at the club. Uh, um, I don't really know how to answer that. It's it's. Uh, well, you could just say thank you if you want. You can just say thank yeah, you. I was going to say that's it's very kind words, and yeah, obviously, um, I, I, it's it's like it's 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 football. It's it's hard. That happens. I think at the time I maybe didn't understand it as well, just because it was my first time I'd moved, and maybe because I wasn't expecting it as such, or just not quite as sudden. Um, I wasn't too sure how to deal with it, and I, I maybe, I maybe for the first time saw the the not maybe the more brutal side isn't isn't the right way to say it, but it's the only way I can describe it. But the more brutal side of football is in that one minute you're. You know, you're a, a player that's been at a club for a long time, and the next year you're basically, no, that's it. You're done. We're done with your services. You know, you can you can move on, and and, and that's I don't maybe think that's how it was. That's just how it felt because, it, like I say, I was still relatively young. It was my first time being in that position, and and not only that, but it was leaving Newcastle. 
it was my first club and, and a club that I'd grown up at and that I considered a home. And so you've got all those emotions going on too that that, that add to it that maybe cloud the the judgment of you know the the, the just the, the business side of football and the players come and go and they move. So uh, yeah, it was it it was it was a hard one to take. And and, and I didn't again like obviously I I, I didn't. I wasn't in a position where I was thinking I, I had to move or I wanted to move. So so even that, I sort of felt I was moving, not fully wanting to do it, but maybe having to do it in terms of my career because, you know, Newcastle have said that, and, you know, they're they're willing to, to sell me on. So, uh, but yeah, look, it, it happens and it is this football and I look back and it's, it's just one of those things. And, you know, I went on and, and, and was able to, to have all their experiences elsewhere and enjoy my football. So, uh, you know, and, and, in the bigger picture, it wasn't the end of the world, but at the time, it, it did feel a little bit like it, I'll be honest. So, uh, Aaron, I just want to throw a couple of numbers at you here, and I don't want to embarrass you with any of these numbers, but I feel it's important for our listeners, because we have got listeners from all different ages and stuff, and there might be some listeners who who didn't get to see you play at Newcastle. I want to just chuck some numbers at you here. So, you played 455 games in the Premier League. The longevity of your career is, is something that I don't think you see very often in the game. I know there's a lot of players who, who go on and play for a lot of years but I think to play the amount of games you did for the amount of teams you did and a guy on on Twitter Johnny Gabriel made the point that you, he he realised that you had played alongside Ian Rush and Aaron Moy which he found was an absolutely <laughs> ridiculous a ridiculous uh, stat um, 205 games for Newcastle and four goals never sent off and I I think we have to kind of applaud you for that. How did you how did you keep going um all that time? I mean, you know, you have a lot of players who get hit with injuries and stuff like that. Was there a particular secret to what you were doing? Is there a reason why you played so are you some sort of machine? Are we unaware of you being a, a cyborg? <laughs> how the hell did how the hell did you do it? I don't I don't really I don't really know. Like there's no I always put that down. So certainly you know, obviously, as I as I got older, that it maybe maybe didn't feel quite as much like a machine. Um, you know, and started to pick up little miggles here and yeah. there, and they, they take a little bit longer to to get by. And I think as as you get older too, you start to understand your body more. You know when you can push yourself and not, and you know that you know you get into a routine of looking after. It. But I I always I always sort of put it down to when I when I was young. Like I was outside all of the time, and I tried to play as many different sports as possible. Like whatever, like in the summer when you know when the when it was te- the, the tennis courts came up at my school, for example, we we play you know football, tennis, or we we just play tennis. And then obviously when the, when the courts came down, uh, you know through the winter, then it, it opened up the whole court just to play five aside. Um, or you know in in the summer I'd do athletics and I'd play like field hockey as well as football, and I just I'd try. I just loved being out and loved playing sports. And I, and I, and this might be totally wrong and it's just my, you know, I've got no sort of scientific evidence to back this up, but I think because of that, I, I was maybe just naturally well-rounded in terms of, you know, just being durable, uh, you know, and, and just had a good base of, of strength and activity that allowed me to do lots of things. And, and, you know, I, I don't know, I, again, I'm, I'm waffling a little bit and it's, it, there's no scientific evidence, but, one of the reasons that sometimes I think like nowadays, like I always, you know, when parents say, oh, you know, what should we do with our kids, you know, in terms of putting them in academies and football and they play football, like how many nights a week they should play. And I actually sort of, my advice would be, yeah, of course, football, if that's your main goal, like, you know, as much as you can, but try and get them as rounded as possible, get them involved in other sports because it develops other movements and things that, 
you can apply on a football pitch. And I, I, you know, you see a lot of like young players now at 14, 15, 16, picking up injuries that you used to associate with a pro that had been in the game maybe 10, 12 years, just because, you know, they're coming into academies now that's so young and it's just so repetitive and they're doing the same things and their, their bodies aren't developing fully. So not not they're not developing fully, but they're, they're you know, they're, they're maybe not getting that, you know, exposure to all different movements and that and, and and you know and that's what's given them the strength so again i have absolutely no scientific basis to prove this on it is just my theory as to why maybe i was able to to go for the, the length that i did and, and you know touch what i didn't have any serious injuries and so there you go aaron hughes is definitely not a cyborg we've just put that to bed uh finally <laughs> yeah on the pod on the time chris do you want to wrap things up for us yeah just just one final question i mean that longevity brought you 112 caps for your country across like 20 years. I mean, you put you captain wins over sort of England, Spain. There was the Euro 2016 you got to. I mean, just just what was that like for you in terms of when you look back at your career, th- those moments for Northern Ireland and, and and pulling on that that sort of jersey that many times? How special was that? I think it doesn't matter where you're from, how big your country is, or you know, how many World Cups you've won, or you know how many games you haven't won type thing. Your country is, is, is your country. And it's, it's a mass, it's a massive like honor, I guess, to, to play for it. And, and yeah, like I, I always, my goal with Northern Ireland was always, I always wanted to go to a, a, a like a, a major, a major finals. Um, that was, that was one thing that I just, I always wanted. And it, it, it went above any amount of caps or amount of games or anything like that. And, it, it was briefly why I retired from Northern Ireland um, because I just, I, 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 I got to the point where I just thought it's never going to happen. You know, we just keep making the same mistakes. You know, it's, that's another story, but I just got to the point where I was a little bit disillusioned and I wanted to concentrate on my club career. And then when, when Michael came in and you could feel there was something changing and, you know, he, just how he was talking and the things he wanted to do. And, and, and not only that, he, he he put a lot of emphasis on, on how special it would be to get a hundred caps. It, it just to then to go, you know, five six years further down the line to get a hundred caps, and then to go to a Euros was just, you know, that was when you say you know that that was the dream, and then you end up you know living the dream so to speak. And, and even at that, like at the time, I hadn't you know I was playing very little club football, and I knew I was probably going there as a squad player, um, you know, and wouldn't get very little playing time. So. As a bonus, I actually got to play in three out of the four games, which surpassed all expectations. And um, it really, it, it, it's it's the highlight of my career. I've had lots of good moments in my career, lots of special memories. But I think that has to be at the top just because it's it's international football, you know, at the, at a major tournament and being able to be involved directly on the pitch was just, it was, uh, it's something that, you know, I, I definitely won't forget. That's that's amazing, Aaron. Thank you very much. Um, I wish you know. I wish it feels like we've only scratched the surface, really, um, and could talk about this kind of stuff all day. But um, I do want to say, firstly, a huge thank you for coming on the podcast. But a sort of wider thank you, um, which is really, you know, you you stood for something really important. You you are. I mean, you would be top of the list in terms of most unassuming footballers I've met and have watched and certainly you know so as I said before certainly you know if I had to kind of name the archetypal professional you would again be top of that list incredibly dedicated I'm 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 moved and touched beyond words that you've come back to the northeast this is your home and so it should be and I hope you'll always think of Newcastle as your home 
Um, and I hope you know. I hope you'll you'll come back on and have a chat to us again because it feels like there's lots more. There's there's lots more we could talk about. But you're not only an absolutely brilliant fella. You were a brilliant footballer, and you deserve recognition for that. And um, thank you very much. Not a problem. Thanks for having me on, George. Thank you. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Thank you. So no much, problem, Aaron. Th- thank you so much for joining us. It's been a, it's been a fantastic uh, little chat. We've really really enjoyed it. And um and stay safe and love to you and the and the family up there in in, uh, in Northumberland as well. Look after yourself and uh, and we'll we'll hopefully speak to you again in the future. It's been great. Thanks a lot, man. There you go. That was lovely, wasn't it? I started getting a bit misty-eyed towards the end of that. I don't know about you, lads. Very much it's so. it's that it's that thing where you know it's a reminder of better times, and um, you know I love talking about that sort of stuff. But you know, as soon as you sort of say those words, he made his debut at the New Camp. It's like, oh Christ, Newcastle, Newcastle actually were at the New Camp, and it's um, <laughs> you know to you know to have that career he's such a lovely fella he is such a lovely fella and um i kind of always wished a little bit that he sort of he projected himself a bit more not stood up for himself because i'm sure he's capable of doing that but sort of you know believed in his own talent a bit more because um he was a really good footballer you know he was a really good footballer and he was dedicate as dedicated as they come if you don't love if you don't love aaron hughes a bit a bit there's something wrong with you He's one of those players that always comes up in the conversation, doesn't he? When we say most underrated Newcastle player or player you wish hadn't left or player that shouldn't have left or, you know, who did a job for you every week. It's always Aaron Hughes' name that gets mentioned in those conversations, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I was, when I was an even squeakier voiced uh, youth, I think I was about 13. That's not possible. Impossible, impossible. When uh, when when Aaron Hughes was in the process of being sold to Aston Villa, the one and only time that I called up uh, Century Radio's three legends and spoke to Malcolm McDonald was basically for me to profess my love for Aaron Hughes and say about how it was such I was devastated that Newcastle would even consider selling him, never mind follow through with that. So yes, he was just. I like how you've done that now when he's gone. I know. <laughs> Did well, we say that to him when he was here? <laughs> Well, I, I, I just get the impression you get quite bottled bashful it. about things like that. Yeah, I did bottle a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he would. He's, he's the yeah, kind, yeah. I, can, I, can, I can tell you, he's the kind of man that you sort of want to hug, but definitely doesn't want to be hugged. I think it's just yeah. one of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, that, and, that, and that makes you want to hug him even more. But he's a, he's a great fella. That's a lovely story, Chris. We'll have to tell him that. We'll have to make sure he hears that. Well, chaps, thank you very much. It's been great fun. I've had a really, really lovely time talking to Aaron and, and, and listening to his uh, his tales of his career. Um, of course, uh, all of you out there listening, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you to everybody on Twitter who sent questions in for Aaron as well. There were some absolute belters in there. I'm sorry we didn't get through more of them, but we are, uh, as always, restricted for time with this. Um, if you can, get yourself uh, on theathletic.com forward slash Newcastle pod and pick up your 40% discount for a subscription. There's lots and lots more stuff going on there at the moment and obviously if there's any updates on takeover or anything else uh, that'll be where it appears uh, from George first uh, and from Chris as well thank you very much for listening look after yourselves take care of uh, of your families uh, stay safe stay indoors and we shall see you very very soon thanks a lot bye bye